friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today we have a great show for you, a very timely show. It's a pleasure to have my TCA colleagues Ashley McGuire and Maureen Ferguson together to chat about fathers. We are celebrating the men in our lives, but also the wonderful concept of fatherhood, the ideal of fatherhood. It uh, gets a bad rap these days in the secular culture, and maybe we've lost some of the sense of what it is to be a father. We wanted to talk about the amazing virtues of fatherhood and masculinity and why dads are needed more than ever. But first, Haley McNamara, who is the vice president of the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, joins me alongside my TCA colleague Maureen Ferguson to discuss the latest expose on Instagram and how it's targeting children in terrible ways. First reported by the Wall Street Journal, Haley comes on to tell us what they are doing to hold these social media companies accountable and how you can help. It's a shocking report on yet another fabulous reason to keep your kids off Instagram and other social media companies, but in this case, specifically Instagram. And you're going to be shocked if you haven't read the report. It hasn't gotten a lot of press. um, So we're excited to talk about it here on uh, Conversations with Consequences, and we're very happy to have Haley McNamara to talk about it with us. She is the Vice President of the National Center on Sexual Exploitation about the dangers that many children are facing and what we as parents can do. And not just parents, you know, also grandparents, aunts, uncles, concerned adults in general, what we can do to keep children safe. So welcome to the show, Haley. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So Haley, instead of me um, giving a long explanation about what the report shows. Why don't you tell us? Right. So this is a new report that came out in the Wall Street Journal. It was a Wall Street Journal investigation in association with Stanford University and the University of Massachusetts Amherst that really found something our organization has unfortunately long known, that Instagram connects vast pedophile networks, um, unfortunately, that their algorithm actually promotes the connection of people who are searching for child sexual abuse material, sometimes known as child pornography. And this is um, both through very explicit hashtags um, that help connect accounts to search terms to advertise the sale of these child sexual abuse materials um, or to to buy. And also um, the algorithm connects people even so much as If the researchers found they went to one account that was selling child abuse materials, they then started being recommended more and more such accounts. And it's quite notable that, you know, of course, the Wall Street Journal reached out to Instagram um, and Instagram attempted to remove a number of these hashtags. But within a couple of days, the researchers were able to find similar content still proliferating. And unfortunately, you know, us at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation have seen the same thing and confirmed this is a very serious problem. Haley, let me follow that up by just reading um, a paragraph from one report of, of this. It says, accounts found by the researchers are advertised using blatant and explicit hashtags like 
uh, pedo whore, preteen sex, and pedo bait. They offer menus of content for users to buy or commission, including videos and imagery of self-harm and bestiality. When researchers set up a test account and viewed content shared by these networks, they were immediately recommended more accounts to follow. As the Wall Street Journal reports, following just a handful of these recommendations was enough to flood a test account with content that sexualizes children. It's very reminiscent of the report that we read also in the Wall Street Journal pages um, last year, I think it was, about TikTok. How mm. how you you sort of it's like you scratch the surface and it, and it's enough to cause a flood of of nastiness and and who's using these websites who's using the social media is are is young people young children as young as I mean I see little kids with playing with their parents phones um, little little tiny children who are they're so good at the phone and at and at their at, at all these. Uh, contraptions but they're they're fabulous at it and they're i'm sure immediately going down unfortunately some of these nasty rabbit holes what did you think uh maureen of the this instagram um report well it, it's i feel like i'm somebody who's really on top of this and I've, I've written about this for national review and other publications but it's still so shocking and one of the most shocking things to me is that that this is it's a violation of federal law that this is a criminal enterprise and how does meta facebook instagram you know of course they're all one and the same how do they get away with this why is there not prosecution why is there just a little slap on the wrist but yet this just goes on and on after one expose after another. Well, Haley, you're the perfect person to answer that because I know that in your organization, that's exactly what you follow and look for and, and are advocating for is for the government um, to prosecute these instances. Yeah, it's a really um, difficult issue. You know, it actually stems from a misinterpretation in the courts of a law called the Communications Decency Act, Section 230, which says that webs all online platforms have broad immunity. Um, this is how the courts have interpreted it, to not have any liability for facilitating even criminal activity that happens on their platform if it's done by third-party users, such as you know, Instagram users. So this actually legally should not be a wholesale, you know, get out of jail free card. There are carve outs. Um, there should be carve outs on child sexual abuse material and sex trafficking, et cetera. Uh, but the courts have just long given too wide of a reign for these platforms. And so they've gotten quite lazy in response to that. You know, they could be doing so much more to proactively prevent this from happening on a mass scale. And our organization, you know, we do public policy, litigation, and corporate advocacy. We've met with Instagram and brought these issues, these types of issues to their, uh, to their front door for years. But time after time, we see that they wait for bad press and then they try to fix just what gets covered in the news um, so that their brand is protected, but they're not doing enough to prevent it because they don't think that they should be held liable through litigation, but we think otherwise. Well, what is section, this section 230 that you mentioned, what's it meant to protect? What, in, if, if it's working properly, what does it protect? Yeah, so if it's working properly to protect something like, you know, if someone says something mean about someone else on Facebook, you know, Facebook shouldn't get sued for defamation. That makes sense. But 
there should be carve outs when a platform knows or should know that they're facilitating things like abuse um, or sex trafficking. And, and they're not just facilitating, they're promoting it with the hashtags and the algorithm. So can you explain that just a little bit more, how they get away with this? With I mean, they're essentially promoting child pornography. I, 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 yeah. I'm reading in the Wall Street Journal here that Meta accounted for 85% of the child pornography reports filed with your center, including some 5 million from Instagram. Oh. Absolutely. And Instagram is constantly rated as one of the top places where children are most likely to see pornography or where children, I mean, I think Thorne released a report and Instagram is a top location for children to have interact sexual interactions with an adult um, online. It's on happening on Instagram. So th th this that particular thing happened to one of my daughter's friends. There right. was a girl who she was probably 17 at the time, communicating with somebody that she thought was a 17-year-old boy and was literally going out to meet him late one night at an abandoned you know, parking lot um, when thankfully, um, it was actually my daughter who caught wind of it. And then my husband called her father and you know put a stop to it all. But he was indeed a child predator. Oh, no. And, I mean, it was that close. And then of course, there were other girls in the group of friends who were also communicating with the same guy uh, as part of the Instagram group, everyone thinking he was a 17 year old boy. And we've all heard stories like this. Yeah. And for so many, they don't have that luck of prevention that steps in and stops something so horrific from happening. So as far as how, you know, Instagram is built in so many ways, so many of these platforms are for profit and they don't test or think about um, the way that their platform could be misused before they launch something. So for example, with algorithms and with hashtags and recommended accounts, Instagram set up to give you more of what you're interested in. That makes sense. If I'm looking at puppy photos, sure, send me more puppy photos. But when it comes to certain issues like child sexual abuse, Instagram, they're smart people. They should be able to step in for certain keyword searches or certain accounts or hashtags, especially, you know, you've listed some of these hashtags. We have found evidence of child abuse material trading with very blatant searches. You know, this isn't so heavily encrypted, coded, that it's impossible for Instagram to figure out how it's happening. Here's a, here's right, a terrible... Go ahead, Maureen. I was just going to read again from this Wall Street Journal expose. It says that when when these images were detected by Instagram and it flashes the warning that these search results may contain images of child sexual abuse, Instagram offers the option, see results anyway. Mm -hmm. And when the Wall Street Journal said, why do you offer the option to look at child sexual abuse? And they just declined comment. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that that's where I just wonder why, why is law enforcement not being more aggressive? And I know on Capitol Hill, there have been attempts to work on this. I know Senator Blackburn, uh, Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee has been a leader uh, in a bipartisan effort with uh, Senator Blumenthal of Connecticut. So, but I don't know if you care to comment on their bill, uh, Yes, and, and would it really get to the to the heart of this? Yeah, a really key bill that's um, introduced right now is called the Earn It Act. 
and it's bipartisan, and it would make it just very clear that platforms that knowingly facilitate child sexual abuse material aren't immune from liability. And so this is very common sense. It's a very narrow and even a very high standard um, legally. So it, it wouldn't lead to a lot of really junky lawsuits. It's just creating a pathway for some survivors to start speaking out. And, you know, we often say, you know, you can't really put a company in jail, but you can sue them and get them to pay quite a hefty fine. And as a result of lawsuits, you can also require that they fix problems that um, have allowed the abuse to happen. So we definitely encourage everyone to contact your representative about the Earn It Act if they aren't supporting it ask them to because, you know, unfortunately, the big tech lobbyists are on Capitol Hill speaking out against this bill because they don't want any kind of liability, even if they are knowingly facilitating child abuse material. Like it's time for some common sense to enter the room. And I think that the Earn It Act is a step in that direction. One thing I found interesting from the report is that Instagram particularly was a a, a very bad offender. And this is from the report. Um, on, on Twitter, they found 128 accounts offering to sell child sex abuse material, which is less than a third than the number they found on Instagram, except despite Twitter being a much, much smaller platform with few, mm. far, use, far fewer users, and also that the content does not appear to proliferate, proliferate on TikTok, and that Snapchat doesn't actively promote such networks because it's mainly used for direct messaging. So I think that's in, that's important information that it's Instagram particularly is is making this grave mistake in a, in a way that other social media platforms are not. Yeah, you know every every social media platform has their weakness, but I think especially the the way that it's so open source is so easy to find and connect in with these nefarious networks. Um, is a real problem. And, you know, I think a lot of people often think about this kind of dark subject matter as only happening on the dark web. But clearly, you know, thanks to Instagram and Twitter and other platforms too, it, it might be on the dark web, but a lot of it's just happening in plain sight too. So as a parent, I'm a huge uh, supporter of giving giving teenagers some sort of a dumb phone as opposed to, you know, a smartphone, which is essentially a, you know, high powered super computer in, in their pockets. Um, so I love the idea of the pinwheel phone, you know, these other products, pinwheel, gab wireless, the light phone. Um, what I don't I don't know if you're a parent or um or in the future, if you will be, what age do you think is appropriate to allow teenagers on on social media? And I know our nation's Surgeon General has really been trying to ring ring the alarm bells about this, recommending that parents hold off allowing their children on social media at all. So, what what are your thoughts? What what are your recommendations for parents? Oh, it's so hard. And I do think that there's a big gray area where it, sometimes it depends on the maturity of your child and your relationship with them. You know, I do think there's there is a point where you can become a coach um, and really talk them through what your concerns are. So, I mean, I, I would acknowledge a big gray area, um, but I personally would really try to push it off as long as possible. And I mean, if possible, I would try to hold off at least until 16 for for the vast majority of platforms and even then having conversations you know i think there's some really great resources um bark is a great resource and protect young eyes 
But I think sometimes we also view it a bit as all or nothing, like have them completely off of everything until they're 18 and then open up the floodgates. And it is important to help build media literacy with your children as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about Bark and Protect Young Eyes? How do they work? Yeah, so Protect Young Eyes is just a great website um, for uh, tips on parental controls and also tips on just what's going on on some apps. Our our platform, of course, and sexualexploitation.org also talks about that. And then Bark is a parental control app. I believe they also have a phone as well which helps monitor for signs of online predators as well as cyberbullying and depression. Um, And they even, one of their great um, uh, claims to fame is through their parental control apps, they've actually helped prevent 16 school shootings by seeing messages that children were sending. So so the good news is is that there are tools for as you're slowly onboarding um, kids to allow them on social media, I would really recommend looking at those tools. When we started talking, uh, Boreen gave us that that really sad anecdote about a a 17-year-old girl almost being inveigled into meeting, you know, a a perv stranger in the adult in the park. Um, And that's so terrifying. It's so terrifying to all parents. And and in a sense, when when we first started a few years ago allowing our children on social media, that was our biggest nightmare. Our biggest fear was, oh, no, a perverted adult is going to gain access to my child. But things have gotten a lot more complicated than that, right? Because we're not just thinking now about, okay, there's there's some bad actors out there and they might gain access to my child. We're really talking about having our children's brains rewired uh, by, mm-hmm. their, by the way that they interact with social media, their constant attention to it, um, the many hours they spend on it, the things that they're missing because they're on social media, and then all these horrible like pits of disgustingness that exists on social media, but that they can fall into and their lives be transformed. Talk to us about that, about how how that how the dangers of social media have metastasized over the years. Yeah, they absolutely have. And you know, um one of you mentioned the US Surgeon General has put out an advisory noting that social media is harmful to children. I mean it's harmful to mental health. Just think about the comparisons. Think about when maybe some of us were growing up, we would maybe compare ourselves to a magazine that we saw in the store, but now it's just that magazine is in their hand and they're just scrolling through it constantly. I mean, the impacts on mental health are incredibly difficult. It's so easy to cyber bully, of course, you know, um, people coercing young people into sharing explicit materials or exposing them to explicit materials, um, harms on impulse control. I mean, really, like we could spend an hour just or more going into all of the research that shows it does have so many negative effects. And, um, you know, I, I think parents are very, you know, I just was speaking with a parent the other week who said that she's tired. She's just so tired because she's trying very hard to be involved. She's tech savvy. She's trying to set up parental controls, but every parental control is different on every app. On Apple, it takes so many steps. I think it's over 30 steps to fully turn on all of the parental controls. And even then there's loopholes and there's- Every time, Haley, every every time I've done parental controls on, on the Apple phone for my youngest child, who's 16 now, um, but we held off. She was the last child by far to get a phone in her in her late. I'm sorry to say, late middle school. I I wish I'd held on till ninth grade, but it was so much pressure. 
But we did a lot of the apps. The Apple apps, the phone uh, control would just stop working. Um, yeah. And it would just stop, and I didn't know how to restart it. <laughs> and I had to keep restarting, and I didn't know when it turned off. It was so frustrating. And like you say, it's tiring. It mm-hmm. feels like you're playing whack-a-mole with your children's future. And that's just that's just one thing. It's social media. But I want to point out that it, your organization does something every year called the Dirty Dozen List. So tell us about your Dirty Dozen list, which I think is a a really valuable uh, public service that you do. Oh, thank you. Yes. So dirtydozenlist.com, we name 12 mainstream corporations that facilitate sexual exploitation and abuse. So some of that might be online grooming of children. Some of it might be exposure to pornography, um, sex trafficking. It, it It runs a wide gamut, but This conversation really just highlights how so many mainstream platforms aren't doing enough to prevent abuse and exploitation from happening. And it's time that we take the burden. You know, this can't just be a parenting problem, because as we've discussed here, the most involved, the most tech savvy parents are exhausted, overwhelmed, and aren't able to fully protect their children's online. So we need to put that responsibility on these platforms and all these companies to do more to actively prevent this exploitation from happening on a mass scale. So we named 12 mainstream companies. Instagram is on that list this year for Mm -hmm. good reason. Um, And we give you as individuals a chance to actually help take action. So we have a form that you can fill out to easily email the executives at the company and demand that they do better. And You know, you might hear that and you might think, oh, sending an email, what's that even going to do? But it actually makes an incredibly huge difference. So often these companies will talk to them and they don't even realize that people want fixes to some of these loopholes. They really are quite behind on safety issues and what parents and children are experiencing in real time. So we've had a number of great victories over the years, including um, we've had five hotels stop five hotel chains worldwide hotel chains stop selling on demand pornography we've gotten tiktok to disable direct messaging for children under 16 which was like a primary way that children were being groomed on tiktok we've gotten google during the pandemic google was handing out google chromebooks to around 50 million students around our country for online learning with no safety features turned on, knowing that they were going to school children. And it took a year and a lot of people taking action through dirtydozenlist.com. But finally, Google Chromebooks is by default turning on safety filters if they're going to schools. 50 million children are impacted by that one simple policy change. And that absolutely is influenced by people taking action and speaking up to the company themselves. So it's infuriating that the companies just won't do the right thing um, on their own, but our actions can make a difference. So I, I think we're just about to run out of time here, but uh, I'm inspired by your stories of of where parents taking action has made a difference. So tell our listeners, where do they find this forum that you refer to? Yes. So it's dirtydozenlist.com. And you, you can learn about Instagram. And we also have Spotify, Roblox, um, Twitter and a num- another of other companies on there too. And you have, but let me point out to our listeners that the name of your your main website is endsexualexploitation.org. I'm yes. looking I'm looking at it right now. It's a fabulous website. I've I've seen it before, and it's it really bears. I mean I mean really, if we don't understand what's going on underneath the surface of all these shiny, glitzy, super cool. <laughs> 
social media, not just the social media companies, but all the other, all the other things that, that all the other corporations and institutions that you rightfully point out um, are somehow being hijacked or participating in the worst kind of abuse, right? Mm-hmm. The worst kind of abuse um, that all of us, I mean, it's sort of, it, it's the crime that cries out to heaven. Uh, mm. sexual exploitation, whether it's of a, of a little girl or a boy or, or adults. I mean, much of that, that, the whole, that whole side of, of our, of our sad, the sad parts of our humanity, which, you know, always seem to include these, these, these horrible abuses. Um, amazing that in our day and age where we, we have to keep uncovering it. And that's what you do at, <laughs> at nsexualexploitation.org, which, again, I recommend to all our listeners. Oh, well, thank you so much. And thank you to you know you shining light on this and for everyone listening, too, who takes action, because the more of us who just step up and say something can really shift things. It's, let me ask you, Haley, on this, on your website, um, under the Dirty Dozen, when we take action, one of those will go out to the Instagram, to Meta? Yes. Yes. So if you go to dirtydozenlist.com, you'll see the whole list and you'll be able to click on Instagram and there will be an action for you. So you've been following, you've been following along. Do you see any, uh, any possibility of response from Instagram now that it's been splashed on the face of the Wall Street Journal? I think so. I think they're highly motivated by bad press, um, which is why sometimes we are very excited. Of course, when press like you are, are covering this, um, but we have had improvements from them in the past, uh, such as limiting the ability for dr- adult strangers to direct message uh, minors under the age of 15. Um, but we, I mean, we think they need to do even more, such as removing direct messaging for uh, young minors and and other things like more proactively scanning for and blocking explicit content than what they're doing. Um, so. They have made improvements in the past in response to people calling out to them and to bad press. So I think this is a good moment for people to really be speaking out and calling on them to do better because I think we've got their ear. Well, thank you so much, Haley. Fabulous to hear from you and really wonderful to hear these uh, this information on Insta- about Instagram and its its dirty dealings with all, with all our young people who are all on Instagram. I wish it weren't true, but every time I look over someone's shoulder, Um, including all my children, (laughs) they're on Instagram. So I'm sure that's the experience of every listener on this call. Thank you, Haley. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Welcome to the show, ladies. Hey, it's great to Good be, to with, be you. with you. Well, it's always fun when the three of us are on. We always have so much to talk about. This weekend is Father's Day weekend, the concept of father, what it means these days, what it means in general in the eternal sense, and and how we relate to that um, in our own in our own small way and in our own bigger ways is is a huge topic of conversation. What are you, Ashley, for instance, thinking of doing to mark Father's Day this year? 
Well, my husband's a big baseball fan. So we're going to a wooden league, small baseball game, but I thought it was sweet because they are having a Father's Day theme for the game and the fathers and sons can go out and pitch and catch to each other. So it's kind of old timey, but it's nice to see things like that where they're still honoring fathers because um, I'm sure we'll get into this, but you know, there's this weird trend. They did this with Mother's Day too, where they were like, want to opt out of, you know, Mother's Day correspondence or Father's Day. And it's almost like they're, you know, people get kind of skittish about, I I don't know why, um, about, you know, honoring moms and dads, but it's nice to see when they're very sort of explicit about carving out a space and time to honor dads. Yeah, I saw that around Mother's Day. I haven't seen that around Father's Day, but maybe I haven't been looking. (laughs) But it was a little surprising People were saying, oh, Mother's Day, let's not let's not mention that or opt out. Or I think I saw some websites that were specifically not mentioning it. You know, we're not going to talk about Mother's Day. I thought that was sort of surprising. And we can talk about that, too, I, and see how it's what's it saying about parenthood. Right. If if it's a delicate subject, it's becoming a delicate subject. So, Maureen, what about you guys and your family? Well, I have to say, I just love Father's Day, and we are so blessed in our family. Um, It brings me incredible joy to see the effect of my husband's fatherhood on both our sons and our daughters. And, you know, growing up for me, it was more complicated relationship with my father. So just to witness um, the importance and and influence of a good father has just been one of the great joys of my motherhood, actually. So I always really look forward to celebrating Father's Day. And we always celebrate in a very ordinary way. He just likes to, my husband just likes to relax for the day, maybe watch some golf or a ball game, but we always do a nice brunch and go to mass together. And then we do a nice dinner, but um, you know, he's, he's very low maintenance on Father's Day, actually. But um, basically we just spend the day together doing not much of anything, just relaxing, which I think after the busy work week, that's what he most wants to do. In our house, it's hard to do something nice for my husband because he's he's always a person who he faces himself in that sense. And, and oh, no, don't do anything. Sp-. And he means it. He wants to do what the family in general finds fun. And, and he's not a man of, of hobbies or sports of any kind. But I think that's uh, that's also a beautiful reflection on a kind of fatherhood, right? The father that he faces himself and and does what's good for the family. And that's that's another thing that maybe is is missing in a lot of uh, concepts of fatherhood these days. What's the or, or not missing or maybe things are have changed in our appreciation of what what fathers do. Do fathers what is the, the role of a father? these days and 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 how have we lost some of that what do you think ashley well i kind of wrote a whole book on this in the sense that um you know even setting aside like gender ideology just the sort of push towards gender neutrality and the whole oh you know everything has to be 50 50 you know women and men make the same amount of money they you know divide this they should divide the chores the same and um, <clears throat> you know, they should do the same number of childcare hours. And, um, I mean, there's certainly some, you know, I think there's been some good changes in the past couple of decades, really. Like I love that. I see now like dads, just like, it's totally normal to see dads with babies and, you know, those little baby carriers and pushing strollers and things that I think, you know, a couple decades ago would have, you would have never seen or thought was really weird. Um, but you know, we've also, you also 
we've certainly lost a sense in the whole politically correct drive of the unique role that fathers play. And the you know funny thing is that there's been so much data and research that have come out in the last in that same period of time that show how sociologically important dads are. Um, and they're just not replaceable. You know, they're not replaceable by another woman. Um, they're not, there's just something about nature that can't be changed that shows that children absolutely need the presence of a dad in their life. And I'll give a concrete example. The, the person who's really, I think, pioneered this research is um, Brad Wilcox at the Institute for Family Studies. But I remember a study that he either did or wrote about that showed that like children actually need the rough housing that dads do. Um, and that there's actually like brain stimulation and development that happens, especially for boys with the kind of like rough play that dads do that moms just don't do. And I try not to be like a safety first kind of person, but even I'm sometimes have to catch myself and be like, ah, stop, you know, don't spin him upside down. He just ate. Like there's just something about the, that time that kids have with their, with their dad's roughhousing that um, seems to be an important part of their development. So the father, know, just- the father in the family fulfills a certain role and, and we can, and I think it's interesting to talk about what that role is. That tra- it's a, there's a traditional role, and then there's also like a natural role, right? Like that you're pointing out, Ashley, that there's a there's a natural position that the father holds, and that if we erase, if we if we change our concept of fatherhood or try to pretend it's it's the same as motherhood, or that the things that those things are fungible, then we're going to have a, a vast empty space where the role of the father is gone. And you mentioned a couple of things like fathers, fathers foster adventurousness in their children and audacity and a sense of I can conquer the world, right? And and not and and we mothers maybe are more oh be careful, wear your boots, uh, be careful when you cross the street, and so there have to be and of course the, an integrated person, a person who is who is equipped to handle the world has a balance of those two things, right? They're able to, they, they face the world with courage and audacity, and they are also able to assess risk properly. What do you think, Maureen? How does the father's role, how does the father affect the children in that sense? What is What, what role is he fulfilling in that sense? Yeah, well, the sociological data that Ashley refers to is so clear, and I love the writings of Brad Wilcox. He's very eloquent and ha- has just done so much research and compiling of research on this. But w- one example with girls, you know, because there's a lot of, you know, tons of evidence about boys being raised in a fatherless home, you know, virtually every school shooter, if you kind of read the profile of the shooter, virtually every single one is growing up in a fatherless home. Well, in prisons, um, the men in prisons and are prisons, generally fatherless. Right. And, but when you look at the data on girls, and I have a book to recommend to our readers, it would make a great Father's Day gift. It's called Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters, written by Dr. Meg Meeker. And she just writes how important a girl's confidence is, you know, d- dependent on her father. And I would highly recommend that book. It uh, was so formative to my husband in fathering our girls. And he makes a point of giving that to other dads. Whenever we meet someone, oh, yeah, I have three girls. He he sends them that book. He has a whole stack in his office and he sends that out. As, as Catholics or as Christians or any monotheistic religion, God has an element of fatherhood. He is our father God. So in some sense, God wants us to think of himself as father. And then and then he infuses in our in our own nature and in, in the way that we are made and that, that the, the creation the, the creation is made he infuses um, all men 
all men who procreate or or it's just or or our fathers spiritually with some of those characteristics of himself right or or he expects them to follow out so actually god as father god as father is is a tremendous concept how does that inform do you think the way men should think of themselves in their in their fatherhood gosh that's a really good question i mean i think it first of all is such a good reminder of the fact that you know with all this sort of gender craziness out there that it's it's worth remembering that God came into the world as a man <clears throat> but he chose a woman as the vessel for coming into the world and so you know just again the the marker or the reminder that there's clearly a divine purpose in our sex and that that has that divine imprint suggests that there's something beautiful there and that we should be reflecting on you know I'm not a theologian so I don't know if I'm the right person to answer the question, but I've been going through the Bible in a year podcast with Father Schmitz. And, um, you know, it's just been such an interesting way to see the different manifestations of God the Father that I love the way in that podcast series, he sort of balances the Psalms with some of the Old Testament. You know, there's a lot of, I don't want to use the word wrath, but there's a lot of sort of strong content in the Old Testament. And then they do these gospel markers where you um, see Jesus and his kind of gentle nature and then the Psalms and the sort of spiritual nature. So I don't know. I think it's that there's, there's many manifestations of God the Father. And I think most of us who knew our dads and are married know that men experience and manifest their own fatherhood in a lot of different ways, that there's not just some one mold of of being a dad, but that there's certain, you know, themes that are consistent, like wisdom and um, strength. And even, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of punishing that goes on (laughs) in in my house for sure. (laughs) And being a mom to four little kids with another one on the way, there's a lot of punishing. There's a lot of times where like, I just tell my husband, like, you have to deal with this. He just, this is what he did. I'm out here. <laughs> well, you know, um, uh, God, a father as the as the one who imparts justice, right? And yeah. it's and it's also a justice that's very fair. Uh, and C.S. C.S. Lewis, who I I really like and I read a lot and I reread because every time I read like mere Christianity or something, I I, I get uh, a completely different set of of lights and illuminations. But he talks about that fathers are are very are are more able to be just um in general not just with the people in their house but the people around their house like in the neighborhood he gives an example if if you were a little if you were a little kid and you broke uh, your neighbor's window and you had to go across the street and own up to it to the neighbor who would you like to answer the door the dad or the mom <laughs> you'd like probably you'd want to answer you'd want the dad to answer cuz he was he's more capable of being sort of fair and calm and just when a woman tends to be very, he calls it family patriotism, right? Oh, my family first, my family first. And a man has a, a father can be a little more broad in his. And we find that in, I find that in, a, in raising children. It's it's easy for me to get very emotional and very, uh, very thoughtful of my children's feelings. But when they need that sort of firm hand and that very just uh, decision-making I say, wait till your father comes home <laughs> because I'm just too overwrought to answer with, to handle this. Did you ever say those words, Maureen? Wait till your father comes home. Oh, so many times. It, 
I am so grateful for my husband's firm hand in the discipline and raising of our children. I think our children would be turning out really differently if I had to be a single mother. <laughs> it's like, we, it's our, like we wear out, right? Like our emotions are too much for us and we wear out well, easily. Well, we, we wear out, but our maternal hearts just tend to go a little too soft on them or we make excuses or we, we're a little too empathetic maybe sometimes. I don't know. I just feel like my husband often has real clarity in those situations. No, that cannot stand. We cannot allow that. And and our children have really benefited from that. It, you know, there's so much uh, to reflect on from scripture on fatherhood. And uh, I've pointed out to my children more than once that the commandment to honor your father and mother is the fourth. It even comes before thou shall not kill. Um, and also that it's the first commandment with a promise because it says, you know, and then it will go well for you if you honor your father. And, um, and you know, this Father's Day, I've, I've been spending a lot of time caring for my elderly father, who, you know, in his old age has many difficulties, and he's, you know, sometimes a little on the cranky side. But, but scripture also tells us, I mean, it basically says, take care of your elderly father, even when he's kind of old and crazy, you know, you know it so, actually um, says that directly, doesn't it? It says it, it actually explicitly. does. <laughs> It's explicit. Yeah, respect them. And it says to fathers, don't torment your children, right? Or don't mortify your children. It, it also says that, which is really important because you see in younger children how that, and with teenagers, how it most certainly provokes rebellion if a father tends too much on the authoritarian side. That is certainly true. But but this Father's Day, I'm thinking a lot about caring for my elderly father as well and the, the challenges therein and how we're also commanded to to take, you know, good care of our elderly fathers. And, and, and Gracie, I know you. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure this is very much on your mind because, of course, you you very recently lost your own father. So yes, I'm yes. sure that this is weighing on you very much. This it's time only of year. it's only been six months, but that he died. But it's in in some ways it's easier. Of course, I'm getting used to the idea that he's no longer with me in in a physical sense. But maybe it's only when your father's gone, after you've had a, a present father, a loving father, a constant father, that you can really appreciate what a strength that he brings to your character, to your life, a sense of stability and safety, and everything's okay because my father will, my father will make sure of it. <laughs> Somehow we carry that from our, from our little childhoods right through our adulthoods if we're fortunate enough to have a father. And maybe, and maybe one of the reasons that people have fallen away from the faith uh, at the tremendous rates that they have, right, as, the, as as our Western culture becomes more secular, is because when fathers are absent, how do you understand our father God? If you don't understand what a father is, right? That sort of the constancy and the the attention and the self the self sacrifice of the father, which is a constant thing. You know, he goes off. A father goes off in the morning to, to sacrifice himself for his wife and children. The, the proper father, the father who who fulfills all his duties. And so we understand the way God sacrifices Himself for us and the person of Jesus, and and the way He's our father all the time, even when we don't understand how he's working. There's a lot that goes wrong, right? And one thing that goes wrong when fathers are absent is we fail to understand our father God. You know, Gracie, Father Arnie Panula, who <clears throat> um, has passed away, but used to run the Catholic Information Center in Washington, D.C., and was an Opus Dei priest who was very beloved and very regarded for his intellect. He used to talk about that a lot, that... <clears throat> You know, it's human nature to sort of superimpose our own personal experience with our father on God, the father. 
and how that was kind of one of the challenges. And I think he was really ahead of his time Mm -hmm. on this because he was talking about this, you know, 15 plus years ago, how this is really a challenge of our time with, with regards to the faith, because with the fracturing of families and so many fatherless homes and so much abandonment that it's kind of a modern day challenge to really disentangle those two experiences and to understand, we you know, have, the love have, of God, uh, the father. Thank you, ladies. I hope that you have a wonderful Father's Day and celebrate your husband's fatherhood and your father's fatherhood and all the other spiritual fathers that we all remember all our spiritual fathers also, not just our physical fathers. So thank you so much, ladies. Good to talk to you, Gracie. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry. It's a privilege for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, as we focus with him on the crucial question of vocations, and our vocation in particular, to be a worker in his vineyard. St. Matthew tells us that when Jesus looked at the crowds, his heart was moved with pity because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Noting how great the harvest of souls was, he asked his disciples to pray to the harvest master, God the Father, to send out laborers for his harvest. And while they were praying, Jesus helped Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon from Cain, and Judas Iscariot recognized that they were the answers to their own prayers. He gave them his own authority and told them to drive out unclean spirits, cure every disease and illness, raise the dead, and proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what these simple men then actually went out to do. We learned several very important lessons from this scene. The first is Jesus' mercy. Just as Jesus looked with pity on the helpless and abandoned crowds then, so he doubtless looks at so many in today's world with the same compassion. Because multitudes are like shepherdless sheep searching for direction, lost in the cosmos. Or like the recent Centers for Disease Control survey showed about our American teenagers, they're persistently sad and hopeless. They don't recognize or hear the Good Shepherd's voice, and so they tune in to the voice of strangers and follow them into danger. Jesus wants us to look out with his mercy. The second thing we learn is about the harvest. Jesus tells us that the harvest is huge and that there are few taking it in. St. John's Gospel, he said, look around you and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. We don't have to be a farmer to understand what will happen if we don't act when the fields are ripe. The produce will corrupt. It's a call to urgent action. The fields are ever white and ripe. We can't waste time. For some people, perhaps for us, today may be the last day for action so that the Lord wants us to start right away. The third thing is about the need for prayer. In response to the huge harvest, Jesus first has us pray for harvesters. This is a command with no expiration date insofar as there will always be an urgent need until the end of time. In response to the need for vocation to the priesthood, religious life, marriage, the aconate, for Christian psychiatrists and psychologists, Catholic doctors, nurses, Catholic school teachers, catechists, you name it. The first thing that we need is not a viral video, a catchy poster, a billboard, or a new program. It's prayer. It's always prayer. Vocations are always gifts from God to which human beings must respond, not things we can earn by our own effort, like salesmen showing quarterly earnings. The vocations crisis that the church is suffering across the board in many locations is ultimately a prayer crisis. 
Not enough people are praying for vocations. Not to mention praying as if their eternal life depended on vocations. In response to the ripe harvest, we have to pray with urgency and insistence. The fourth thing is to notice what Jesus has us pray for. He has us ask God the Father, the harvest master, not for bodies, but laborers. In other words, for hard workers. Harvesting for Jesus is not a cushy, air-conditioned job in a plush corner office. We go out in the noonday sun. The harvest needs people who are willing to roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty, who know how to work up a sweat. Who are these laborers that the harvest needs? So often Catholics can look at this passage as a call to pray for priestly and religious vocations. That's clearly one application of the passage, which is why it's often used by those in vocations work. The whole church needs to pray far more insistently for these vineyard laborers in an age when a shortage is already here and will become more acute. But I hope by this point, 60 years after the Second Vatican Council, what I'm about to say is obvious. Priests and religious are not the only hard workers the harvest master needs in his vineyard. I think back to the episode in the life of the prophet Isaiah when he heard the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah's response was not to think about all the others. His response is what God wants from all of us. Isaiah simply said, Here am I, Lord. Send me. The fields are ripe for harvest, and all of us, as God's chosen one, have a role in bringing in that harvest. No one gets a pass from living out the consequence of our baptism and confirmation. If we think we do, we're not really Jesus' disciples. For Jesus says, the one who doesn't gather with me scatters. Jesus says that there's no way to be neutral. We're either gatherers and laborers in his vineyard, or we drive people away from him, we scatter. Every Catholic is called to be a laborer in the vineyard. Each one of us is called to gather with Jesus. To each of us, Jesus says, I appointed you to go and bear fruit that will last. Sometimes Catholics can and do try to pass the buck on working in the vineyard. They can look at the church like an inn rather than a home. We all know what happens in a hotel. We give some people money and they do all the work. They make our bed, clean our room, prepare our breakfast, fix things when they break. Catholics can sometimes look at their parish, their chaplaincy, or the church as a whole with these lenses. They can think that they've done their part by coming to Mass and putting something in the collection basket, leaving others clergy, religious, staff, and volunteers with so-called time on their hands to do the work of the harvest. But this pattern never happens in a functional family where everyone needs to pitch in. It's not the way God wants it in his home, the church. There's a saying, validated in my own priestly experience, that in most parishes, 5% of the faithful do 95% of the work. The rest come to Mass, they say their private prayers, but often treat the church like a business where others are working for them. Jesus wants to change this. That's what today's gospel is about. He wants us praying for laborers, and then he wants us to recognize that he's something each of us we're praying for, just like he did the first 12 to be the answer to those prayers. He wants us to grasp that he wants and needs us to be hard workers for his harvest, to do our fair share, not simply out of justice, but as the path for us to work out our salvation and help in the salvation of others. The whole purpose why he founded the church was to give us as a community the joint task to complete his mission. To proclaim as we do in the creed that the church is apostolic means that it is founded on mission. To the Greek word apostolos, one who is sent, means. For us to be a successful, to, us to be successful as a mystical body, we can't only have 5% of the organs doing the work for the whole body. We need to have the whole body working together. Jesus looks at the crowds of those who are lost, many of whom may not be saved. 
and look at, looks at each of us with all the talents and opportunities and graces He's given us and says, what are you going to do about it? He asks, will you help me in this mission of the salvation of the world? The last question is, where does Jesus want us to harvest? A few of us He calls to be missionaries to preach the gospel in distant places. But most of us He treats like He treated the twelve in today's gospel. He sent them first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He sent them to those around them whom they knew who spoke their own language, who shared their own culture. Likewise, Jesus wants to send most of us to the lost sheep of our own homes, to the wandering lambs and goats of our families, of our friends, of our co-workers and fellow students. He wants to send us to the lapsed and lukewarm and unchurched who are on all sides. He wants to send us to the wounded, the mangled, the abandoned, those like sheep without a shepherd, to tell them that there is a good shepherd who's calling them by name, who loves them, who's laid down his life for them. But he wants us to use our recognizable voices to get his message across. Others' salvation may hinge on our saying yes to this mission. Jesus calls us to be generous in responding to this call. He says at the end of today's gospel conversation, You have received freely, give freely. Everything we have and are, we have received from God, who gave his very life out of love for us. Jesus calls us to respond to the free gift of his life for us, with the free gift of our life for him and others. To love others as he has loved us means precisely to lay down our lives out of love for the salvation of our family, our friends, even our enemies. We're called to work as hard for their salvation as Jesus did for us. This is our mission. This is the reason why we were chosen. This is the task of the Catholic Church and every faithful Catholic. To strengthen us for this hard work and as a reward for it, Jesus gives us his own flesh and blood in the Eucharist. In it, we learn the meaning of generosity how to give our body and shed our blood and sweat for the salvation of others. This is just one more proof that the Lord who calls us to this mission will give us all the help he knows we need to fulfill it. If only we say yes. If only we look with compassion on the same crowds. If only we turn in prayer to the harvest master, plead for laborers, and respond like Isaiah to that holy summons. This Sunday at Mass, the harvest master will say to us again, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Let's give him the answer for which he's waiting. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com. And you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 